thought has been on my mind. <clears throat> we say good Jew, bad Jew. Or when we say good mother, bad mother. Or when we say uh, good husband, bad husband. What exactly do we mean? Now, obviously, we would, we would love to have our mothers and fathers be perfect in every way. Our father should be a perfect advisor and a protector and a provider and a, and a source of strength and inspiration and wisdom and all the good things. But suppose a father is not a great advisor. And suppose a father is not a great provider. And suppose a father is not a great protector. Does that make him less of a father? Is that a failure in fatherhood? It's not. Because those kinds of things can come from others. It doesn't have to come from your father. The same with a mother. If the mother doesn't give you great advice and doesn't help you when you have a problem or doesn't nurture you properly and doesn't have great uh, bedside manner when you're not well, whatever, those are not faults in motherhood or in mothering, those are human failings. So to be a good mother, you don't have to be a perfect human being. So what then would be the decisive factor that determines, that separates the good mother from the bad mother? And the same is true with a Jew. Every person has their failings, their character flaws, their weaknesses, and so on. Does that, does that mean that if you have any of these weaknesses, you're not a good Jew? I think the only, the only acceptable definition. A good mother is a mother who never wishes she wasn't. Now let's start with the negative. A bad mother is a mother who wishes she wasn't. A bad husband is a husband who wishes he wasn't. But the mother who is always there mothering. Now, she may be making mistakes. She may be doing it wrong. She may be missing something. But she's, she's there as a mother all the time and doesn't want to be anywhere else. That's a good mother. The mother who wishes she could be somewhere else or something else, that's a bad mother. The same is true with a Jew. A good Jew is a Jew who never wants to be anything else. Now, how good is he at being a Jew? Uh, that, that's, a, that's a whole other question. But the fact that he is full-time uh, in that identity, that mean, that's good. All other failings are failings in other areas, not in his Jewishness. So I was talking to this man who uh, was beginning to observe a little bit. He was changing his kitchen, making it kosher, and it was his wife's urging, and he wasn't so sure what he, exactly what he's getting himself into. He was a little hesitant about the whole thing. And we were, we were talking, and he says um, something about he belongs to a synagogue, and the rabbi never told him anything about kosher for 40 years, never said anything about it. So why all of a sudden does he have to do this? So I said, well, you know, if you want to follow the rabbi of, the, of your synagogue, then that's a different story. 
He says, no, no, I don't want to follow him. I said, why not? He says, no, I, no, I, I don't respect him. I said, why don't you respect him? He says, no, it's not because he doesn't keep kosher. I said, okay, fine. Why don't you respect him? So he tells me the story that uh, the rabbi uh, had a program in which he was on a panel, I think, together with, with a Catholic priest. And uh, there was a newspaper report of the event. And they had a picture of the rabbi, an uh, 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 individual picture of him, a uh, portrait. And they had a picture of the, of the priest, side by side. And as often happens in newspapers, they got the uh, names wrong. So, so under the rabbi's name, it said Monsignor or whatever. And under, under the priest's name, it said rabbis also. And uh, he saw it, and he was, he was very angry about this. What a, what a horrible mistake, the newspaper. How could they do such a thing? Anyway, so he ran to the synagogue, to the rabbi, and he said, Rabbi, did you see what happened? And the guy says, yeah. He said, this is terrible. The rabbi said, not so, not so terrible. Since then, he doesn't respect me. He said, I don't care if he keeps kosher or not. I don't care if he drives on Shabbos. I don't care. I don't care if he performs intermarriages. But he's not uncomfortable with the fact that he's confused with a, that, that's You're the rabbi. You're not the priest. That he was complimented almost, you know, that, uh, that he could be mistaken for... If we never step out of our role, then we are good. That's it. So a good Jew is a Jew who is, who is a Jew full-time. Now, he may blunder, and he may be sloppy at it, and he may be clumsy at it, but he's there full-time. And the same thing with a mother, and the same thing with a father. And all other failings are not, are not crucial to the definition of father, mother, or, or Jew. Now, going on to tonight's topic. Something about marriage. about relationships. Every, every art, every project, every, um, every function in life has a basic rule that is unique to it. It's like um, like any subject. I mean, you want to you want to learn art. You want to learn uh, what are you saying? Horseback riding. There, there's a certain basic rule that is unique to that particular talent or ability or function. If you know that basic rule, you're way ahead of the game. If you're not aware, if you don't know that basic rule, then It'll never be, the project will never be the way, the way it's really supposed to be. Finding that one crucial rule is a talent in itself. It's a, it's a wisdom that, uh, that, takes, that takes some effort, that takes a lot of years, until you finally get, you plumb to the depths of the subject and get to that one basic fundamental principle that guides the whole thing. What's unique about marriage? 
there are so many aspects, there are so many details, there are so many sides to a relationship. What's unique about marriage? And we can see that we haven't plumbed to the core of, of what it is because look at all the trouble we have. How difficult, how confusing, how frustrating, how, how almost destructive human relationships are. We must be missing something quite fundamental that, uh, that makes all the, all the difference in the world. For 60 years, the media has bombarded us from a million different directions in the most brilliant, subliminal uh, message, trying to convince us of one simple thought, one simple idea, and that is that human sexuality is natural, it's innocent, it's fun, relax, enjoy. Is that so complicated? 60 years. Every advertisement, every billboard, every magazine cover, everything. The same message over and over and over. And all the best minds were working on this. Brilliant people with brilliant use of the media for 60 years. It's amazing that after all of that, nothing's changed. We're just as uptight, we're just as frustrated, just as confused, mystified, just as damaged. How come it didn't work? Why can't we get this simple message through our heads? Sex is what people do, so do it and enjoy in Zeigesund. What's your problem? When we were getting married, so before, before the wedding, you, get, you take classes, you know, you get to learn the laws of marriage and so on. So there were three of us getting married in the same month. So we, you know, we went to the teacher and we sat down, private lessons and so on. And this one guy said, I'm so worried, I'm so nervous, I don't know, I don't know. <laughs> so the rabbi said, you're a smart boy. You're an intelligent human being. You don't think you can figure out what birds and bees can do? You'll figure it out, don't worry. We don't figure it out. <laughs> we don't figure it out. We, we are totally mystified when it comes to intimacy. So there is literally an intimacy crisis in, uh, in our society. Some people have already given up on it. There is no intimacy, forget it, it's a myth. Nothing's intimate. You enjoy. Other people are, are desperately trying to find ways of rediscovering intimacy. So the Torah comes along and says that a husband and wife have to be modest with each other. Just as we have to be modest with others, we have to be modest with each other. Now, 
the conventional understanding, conventional wisdom, always assumed that the laws of modesty are there to prevent people from sinning and misbehaving. Isn't that, isn't that what it always... Oh, you better watch it. You start walking around like that, you're gonna, who knows where you're going to end up. Modesty is there to prevent us from misbehaving. For hundreds of years, that's been the assumption. And that's been the message. You see somebody dressing immodestly, you say, what are you? Implying all sorts of immoral behavior. Because modesty was supposed to prevent you from sinning. If you're not modest, you must be sinning. <clears throat> of all places, we put a mechitza in a synagogue. Modesty. Everybody says, oh, it's for modesty. <laughs> have to separate men from women in the synagogue because of modesty. Now, this doesn't make any sense at all. If you're worried about people misbehaving and therefore need to set up a modesty screen, the last place you need to worry about it is in the synagogue. What, are people going to commit adultery in the aisles? What, what is this? It'd be a good idea to have one of those things on the subways. But in a, in a synagogue? For what? It's a terrible misunderstanding. The purpose of modesty is not to prevent sin. For two reasons. First of all, because modesty is much more sophisticated than that. And second of all, because there's no such thing as preventing sin. <laughs> you, can't, you can't prevent sin. That's it. And the more laws you make to prevent sin, the more opportunity there is for sinning. Because now you've got another law you can violate. So there's this general principle that says you don't make laws to stop crimes. You make laws for people who want the law, not for people who intend to break it. So if people are going to sin, there is nothing you can do to prevent it. Nothing at all. At best, people who want not to sin and need a little help, so you can make some laws that will help them, will facilitate their desire to be good. But anybody who wants to sin, there's no way you prevent sinning. Of course, we know this from the Middle East, where women overdress. That means they don't sin? No, it just means it takes a little longer. It, 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 nothing prevents sin. So what really is modesty all about? <clears throat> to understand that, we have to understand what is intimacy. What's our definition of intimacy? What is intimate? Intimate means personal. Something personal. Intimate means private. Intimate means sacred. Set aside for special occasion. That doesn't quite get to the core of what intimate is. 
there was this group of, of teenagers in Texas who started a whole national movement to encourage abstinence among teens. And their slogan, the girls' slogan, uh, mantra, is we're saving ourselves for our husbands. Or save yourself for your husband. That sounds very noble. It sounds very um, chaste. But, but again, it, it falls short of that basic definition that we really need to get to in order to have mastered the idea. Save yourself for your husband. What does that mean? What does that mean? Who is this husband who has privileges no one else in the world has? What makes him so special? If the act is proper and good, then what's the husband? And if the act is not proper, then, then why is it proper with a husband? So, so what is this? The definition of intimate is that which is so much a part of you that you can't share it. We have two dimensions to us. We have a social dimension, and we have a private dimension. There's what is me, and there's what is us. So that there's a part of me that relates to the us. There's a part of me that is just me. The part that is just me, that's the intimate part. Adam and Eve were, were naked, and they were not ashamed. But they ate from the tree of knowledge, and they were ashamed of their nakedness. What happened? They ate from a tree of knowledge. They gained knowledge. Das. Why did that make them ashamed? They were ashamed not because the body is, is, is embarrassing or, or sinful or the whole original sin idea. They were ashamed because before they ate from the tree of knowledge, they had only Chachma and Bina. They had no Das. And when you have Chachma and Bina, you are brilliant, you are, you are incredibly knowledgeable and intelligent, but you don't have insight. So in their innocent state, before they ate from the tree of knowledge, all things looked alike. Everything was the same. This was one big universe that reflected the Creator. So when they looked at the trees, they saw God. They looked at the stones, they saw God. They looked at themselves, they saw God. Stars, the moon, they, it was all God. It all had one color. It all had one flavor, one meaning. Everything in the world was about the Creator. When they ate from the tree of knowledge, they gained Das, and the world became three-dimensional to them. In other words, they were now able to see the difference between mine and yours, or me and you, between personal and, and, and public, between, uh, between the intimate and the non-intimate. And they realized that in God's creation, not all things are the same. And that's exactly like a child. When a child at, at, a, at a young age is growing up, 
He has no concept of mine, yours, uh, personal or impersonal. And that is, that is a nice, pleasant state of innocence. But it's not true to life. As a child gets older, he realizes this is not mine. I can't take it. This is my toy. You can't have it. They, they start to distinguish. They gain the power of discernment. When Adam and Chava ate from the tree, they gained the power of discernment. And therefore, they were ashamed, not because of, an, of, of sin or ugliness. They were ashamed that they had made no distinction between the private and the public. They had made no distinction between the intimate and the non. And so the first thing they did, they got dressed. What does that mean? It means they placed a border. They made a distinction. They marked the, uh, the separation between me and you, mine and yours, private and public. They now recognized those borders. And uh, we, we all experience that. When we walk into the wrong room in a hotel by accident, we are ashamed. Not because we've sinned, not because of anything ugly or nasty, but simply because we didn't notice the border. And when you step across a border from where you belong to where you don't belong, it's embarrassing. So it was a matter simply of recognizing what's what. So Adam and Eve discovered, when they ate from the tree of knowledge, they discovered the, 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 the border that separates intimate from non-intimate. And that's when they developed a sense of self. Now this part of me that is not social, that is not meant to be shared, that is not meant to be us, it's meant to be me. That's the intimate space of my existence. What does intimacy mean? Intimacy means when I share that intimate space. But now we've got a, a logical impasse. Intimacy means to share an intimate space. Intimate means the part that's not shareable. So what is an intimacy? So there were, for a long time, there were many, many uh, uh, teachers, philosophers, who believed that intimacy is experienced once in your life. Because intimacy means sharing the part of you that is not shareable. Well, you can only do that once. Because once you've shared it, it's not intimate anymore. It's been shared. Even in marriage. Because if intimate means private, you can't have semi-private. Only hospitals can have semi-private. Semi-private means non-private. It's an oxymoron. 
So if intimate means private, well, it's been private, but now it's not private anymore because there's someone else in your intimate space. So that's it. So from now on, the intimacy is not, is not really an intimacy because the space is no longer intimate. It's been shared. And so there was this whole thing about virginity and uh, you know, uh, uh, a girl who was found not to be a virgin. It was grounds for divorce. And it was because, hey, this is a one-time, once-in-a-lifetime experience. And it's worth whatever cows or goats or sheep. <laughs> the miracle of marriage is that a couple can be intimate with each other for 70 years and it never loses its intimacy because the place never becomes less than intimate. Actually, intimate doesn't just mean the part you don't share. It means the part you can't share. So it's not like I'm saving myself for my husband. You, even with your husband, you can't share what is not shareable. And it's that, that which is the, the intimate part, the intimate space in our lives. The, the unshareable, not the part you don't want to share. A person can refuse to share many things. That doesn't make it intimate. It just makes them <laughs> selfish. But there's a part of us that we can't share not because we're told not to, not because we're not generous, not because we're selfish, not because we're arrogant, but because it's not, by definition, shareable. It's almost like you don't even have the authority or the right to give it away, because it's not yours to give away. So now what, what exactly is marriage? Now here we come to a very basic fundamental definition. Human sexuality, human intimacy is sacred. When God said to Adam and Eve, when they were wondering about who the other is, <laughs> like, what are you doing here? God said to them, uh, be fruitful and multiply. And they were shocked. How can you do that? How can you enter another person's intimate space? It's not shareable. It's a divine invention. God came up with this plan in which you can share the unshareable. But unshareable means sacred. We used to be familiar with sanctity. Back in the good old days, things were sacred. Shabbos was a sacred day, different from all other days. The synagogue was a place of sanctity, different from any other building. The rabbi was a sacred individual, hopefully. Not like everybody else. The holy books were sacred books. You didn't just throw them on the floor when you, when you finished reading. You kissed them before you put them away. 
a Jewish child was familiar with sanctity. Kissed the mezuzah before he went to sleep. So when he was ready to get married, and his mother sits down with him and says, listen, intimacy is a very sacred thing. He said, I got it. Say no more. Today, when we say sacred, we're not sure what we mean by that. How do we handle that which is sacred? So if we use this example, you go to Jerusalem, you go to Yerushalayim for the first time, and you're very excited. You're going to the holy city in the holy land. And you get to the holy land, and some people are falling on the floor and kissing the soil, and you don't know exactly how to handle this. I mean, how do you, what do you do with holy land? But that's Tel Aviv Lud. Then you get to Yerushalayim. You say, oh, this is the holy city. Now you really don't know what to do. This is the holy city within the holy land. And then you get to the, to the uh, what's that called, the plaza in front of the wall. And now you're standing next to the holiest site in the world. What do you do? Are you allowed to touch it? Should you touch it? May you touch it? Are you, are you fit to get that close to something sacred and holy? And you're torn. You don't want to just walk away. I mean, what do you do? And hopefully you get up the courage, because you see others doing it. You get up the courage, and you walk over, and you touch the stones, or you kiss the stones, or you put a note in the crack of the stones. Whatever it is, you, you make some contact. And even while you're doing it, you're not sure you should be doing this. So you have this mixture of feelings. I'm doing it, but I'm not sure I should be doing this. That's how we experience the sacred. <clears throat> there are things that God gives us, and it's ours. There are things God makes available for us to come in contact with, but it may not be ours. That's the sacred. So now, we were learning in Gemara and Yeshiva that in the Beis HaMikdash, in the temple, there were two rooms, the outer chamber and the inner chamber. The outer chamber was called holy. The inner chamber was called holy of holies. Kedush HaKadosh. In the outer chamber, only Kohanim were allowed to go in there, and only if they were ritually pure and they had gone to the mikveh, and it was their turn, it was their week to be serving. In the Holy of Holies, no one was allowed to go in, not even a Kohen, because this was God's intimate space. In fact, uh, the Medrash says that the Beis HaMikdash was built uh, architecturally to resemble a womb because the Shekhinah is like the feminine part of God and this is the place of the Shekhinah so the, 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 the building was constructed to resemble the womb so this was God's intimate space 
No one was allowed to go there. Between the outer chamber and the inner chamber, between holy and holy of holies, there was a curtain separating the holy of holies from the holy, which is like the, um, the outer chamber is a woman who is single, and the inner chamber is a woman who is married. The sanctity of the Holy of Holies was so great that in the times of the Second Temple, they put up two curtains, double curtains, because on Yom Kippur, once a year, the high priest, the Kayin Gadol, was supposed to go into the Holy of Holies with incense and offer a prayer and come back out, a matter of minutes. But as he went into the Holy of Holies, he had to part the curtain. Had to, and for a second there, the Holy of Holies was exposed to the other room. So they put up a double curtain. The Kohen would go in through the f first curtain on the right side, then he would walk between the two curtains and enter the second curtain on the left side so that there wasn't even a moment when the Holy of Holies was exposed. When the Kayan Gadol would come out of the Holy of Holies, he would make a party, at the end of Yom Kippur, of course, he would make a party to celebrate his survival. Because if the, if the Kayan Gadol would have an unholy thought or an inappropriate thought, in the Holy of Holies, he would die right there. So if he came out, it meant that he was uh, on a very holy level, and they made a celebration for him. Then we were told that in the times of the Second Temple, the people who were appointed high priest, Kayengadu, were not on the same level as the previous generations, and they did have inappropriate thoughts while they were in the Holy of Holies, and they died one after the other, which created a terrible dilemma because how do you get them out? No one is allowed to go in there, not even the next high priest, because there's a dead body in there. So if the high priest goes in there, he becomes exposed to, to big problem. So they instituted a custom that when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies, he had a rope tied around his, his ankle. I mean, it was that common that, that the, that the Kayin Gadol would die, that they actually had a rope around his ankle so that they could drag him out if he died. And I remember thinking, even as a boy, learning this Gemara, that the teacher, or the Gemara, I forget who it was who, who used the, the words, but the teacher was saying, they were not as uh, holy as the, as the previous generation. And I thought, that's very generous. That is a very, a, very, a very generous understatement. They weren't as holy. I mean, if you think about it, this guy is the Kayan Gadol, not, not some guy off the street. And he's going into the Holy of Holies. Once a year. Not like he does this every day, once a year. And he's in there for a few minutes. He 
He can't concentrate on what he's doing. He has inappropriate thoughts. You call this less holy? This is an animal. I mean, any schmender can concentrate for 15 minutes if he's doing something that he hasn't done all year. So what kind of a mishugener goes into the Holy of Holies and allows himself an inappropriate thought, knowing full well that he is this year's Kayan Gadol, because last year's Kayan Gadol was dragged out by the rope. <laughs> and he can't forget that because he's got a rope around his ankle. What kind of person is this? So I thought it was very generous of him to say, they weren't as holy. But later, I figured out, they didn't have vulgar thoughts. They, didn't, they weren't thinking, like, when do we eat? <laughs> this dinner you know, fast is getting to be too long already. They, they were, this was a Kayin Gadol. What was the inappropriate thought for which they would die in the Holy of Holies? The inappropriate thought was, a fleeting moment of familiarity. The thought that no one else can come in here, no one else can come in here. For that they died. Because no one can come in here, not even you. So even while they were in the room, they were, they were supposed to be conscious of the fact that no one goes here. And if they felt for a moment, even the slightest twinge of, you know, except me, that's it, they died. So to make it very clear, if you met the Kayin Gadol in the street, and you said to him, oh, you're the guy who goes into the Holy of Holies, he would say, what are you talking about? Nobody goes into the Holy of Holies. And you'd say, yeah, yeah, I know, I know, except you. And he would say, bite your tongue. No one goes into the Holy of Holies. And you would say, wait, 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 don't, don't confuse me here. On Yom Kippur, you went into the Holy of Holies? He says, yeah. And last year? Yeah. The year before? Yeah. Next year, you're going into the Holy of Holies? Yeah. All right, so you're the guy who goes into the Holy of Holies. He says, what are you talking about? Nobody goes into the Holy of Holies. Does this make any sense? The Kayan Gadol has to be very careful because he goes into the Holy of Holies, but nobody goes into the Holy of Holies. And if he can't handle that paradox, he's dead. The reason being very simple. The Holy of Holies is a sacred place. Sacred means private. Private means nobody. Not semi-private. Nobody goes into the Holy of Holies, which means nobody belongs there. Nobody. Now, God calls the Kayan Gadol and says, come on in and bring the incense and say a prayer for your people. So he goes in. So now, is he the guy who goes there? Nobody goes there. Even as he's standing in the Holy of Holies, does he belong there? No, he does not belong there. No one belongs there. 
So if he has that awareness, then he is not compromising the privacy of the place. But if he should start to feel slightly entitled, now he's compromising the privacy. The privacy is too holy to budge. He dies. Like a guest. You invite somebody over to your house, and they're very nice. They really appreciate your hospitality. They're really thankful for everything you do for them. You invite them back. They're delightful guests. But you invite another person to your house, and they start to act like they own it. They start making comments about why you put this here, why you put that there, and how come you don't move this, and uh, this you should sell altogether, it doesn't fit. You don't invite them back. They're not invited back. Because when you say make yourself at home, you don't mean rent out a room. You mean make yourself at home in my home, not yours, not even slightly, not even for a moment. This is how we treat sanctity. You go to the wall and you kiss it, and you touch it, and you're not supposed to touch it. You have no business touching it. So when you do touch it, you have to be conscious of the fact that you can't touch this. It's untouchable. Human sexuality involves a sacred part of ourselves. That's what intimate means. God said to Adam and Eve, be intimate with each other. And they, and they couldn't believe it. How do you do that? How can you enter a sacred space without violating it? How do you enter a private area without damaging the privacy? How can being there not be a trespass? And by the way, that's why sex and violence always come together. They have a strange relationship. But why, are they, why do they, they show up together everywhere? Because in human sexuality, the slightest inappropriate thought turns it into violence. Because as soon as we start to feel comfortable, familiar, and entitled, it's trespass. It's not intimate anymore. It's destroying the sanctity. So now let's get back to the media. The media has for 60 years tried to convince us that it is perfectly natural for one human being to enter another human being's intimate space. It's a lie. It's not true. I'm not talking religiously, I'm talking naturally, by nature, by definition. It is not natural to enter another person's private space because then it's not private anymore, you violated it. And even if you have permission, it's the person himself or herself cannot share the unshareable. It's almost like God can't even allow the Kayan Gadol to make himself at home in the Holy of Holies. 
because if it's sacred, then it can't be shared. It's not a matter of do you want to or not want to. So now, if we had to put it in very simple terms, what is the truth about human sexuality? Is it what the media says, something people do, it's what we do? Or is it what our grandparents used to say, it's something we don't do? Now, for the longest time, as with modesty, conventional wisdom understood the grandparents to mean this is something you're not allowed to do unless you're married, which is very confusing. If you're not allowed, so marriage means when you can do what's not allowed? Or the statement that really we should all be celibate. But, you know, people, you know, people, what are you going to do? So, okay, fine, so don't be celibate, but at least restrict it to one person, like damage control. That's horrible. Our grandparents were right. They weren't saying, they may not even have known what they were saying, but what they were saying was, Intimacy, sexuality, is by its very nature something we don't do. It's a place we don't go because it's intimate. They didn't mean you shouldn't. They didn't mean you're not allowed. They didn't mean it's disgusting. They meant it's a place we can't go. You can't go there. It's off-limits by its very nature. They meant it's sacred. We thought they were saying it's a secret. <laughs> so we read a book or a magazine, and we found out what the secret was. So we came back home, and we said, hey, we figured it out. Not a secret anymore. And they still wouldn't talk about it. So then we thought, oh, Guess it's more than a secret. Maybe it's a pathological, emotional crippling that they can't talk about these things. But we learned to talk about them because it was not a secret anymore. So today, human sexuality and intimacy is not sacred or secret. What is it? It's a mess. So the miracle of marriage is that no matter how many times we enter each other's intimate space, we never feel like we belong there, like we have any rights to it, like we have any license, like we have any uh, familiarity where we don't belong and will never belong. In fact, when we're innocent and young, the first time that we have intimacy, it's exactly that feeling. I can't believe what I'm doing. I can't believe that I'm allowed to be here. And that should be the way we approach it every time, because it never changes. As soon as we start to feel privileged, as soon as we start to feel like we have some claim or some rights to another person's intimacy, we are violators. It's rape. It's trespass. 
and you know exactly what I'm talking about when you take a look at an elderly couple who have been married forever and they're still a little bit bashful with each other. That's the magic. That's the magic. They have not grown familiar with each other's intimacy. And that's not a detail in marriage. That's the whole thing. That's the whole thing. God created us in such a way that in our homes and in our daily lives, we have access to sanctity. But we have to know how to handle it, how to treat it. Now, the, the, that famous statement, familiarity breeds contempt. I'm not sure in what context it was said, but the way it applies to this context, familiarity between husband and wife is desirable, positive, and, and kosher, holy. A couple should become more and more familiar with each other, more and more comfortable with each other more and more a part of each other's life. We should be familiar with each other in the living room, in terms of our moods and habits, in the kitchen in terms of our tastes and our likes and dislikes. We should be able to finish each other's sentences. We should be able to understand each other without having to talk. This is great familiarity. But all that familiarity and all that goodness and all that closeness and all that warmth has to be left at the door of the bedroom. When you go into the bedroom, familiarity is not welcome, it's not kosher, it's not acceptable, it's not healthy. That's where familiarity breeds contempt. Because when the familiarity is damaging the intimacy, then it's violence, then it's trespass, then it will breed not just boredom, contempt, because it's violating. I mean, it, it's 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 strange that we that the, the 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 secular thinking doesn't pick up on this. On the one hand, we are so sensitized today to that kind of trespass, sexual harassment. I mean, there was even uh, a suggestion that uh, there should there should be a um, there should be legislation against unwelcome looks because you can be sexually harassing someone just by looking at them. So we've become so sensitive to that border that protects the, sa the sacred, the intimate, from the non-intimate. And yet on the other hand, we keep thinking, oh yeah, sure, people do that. This is schizophrenic. The secret of marriage, and I, I, I'm convinced that maybe 
98% of all divorces would be eliminated. If this simple reality about marriage was recognized and observed, don't become familiar with each other in the bedroom. Don't become familiar with each other's intimate space. It's a violation. It doesn't work. Something is going to die. Not like the Kayan Gadol who dies. The people aren't going to die, but something in the relationship, something in that sanctity is going to die because it can't take that kind of abuse. Sanctity needs to be treated with sanctity. And that's why the modesty between husband and wife is more important than the modesty in the streets. We know that some guy who gets undressed and runs across the field at, uh, you know, during the World Series, <laughs> a streaker, is a Michiganer. I mean, where's modesty? That's not as bad. So what? So he's a Michiganer. But if he acts that way at home with his wife, He's destroying something sacred. So better he should run around naked outside than inside. Modesty is actually more important between husband and wife than between strangers. Because the strangers don't have to see each other again ever. Husband and wife have to be intimate and sacred again and again. So their sanctity has to be preserved. Otherwise, it's not marriage. It's something else. It's not sex. It's something else. Because sex without sanctity, I don't know what that is. Because sex without intimacy, what is that? So this is, this is the secret of the, of the Kayan Gadol. And the proof of the whole thing is children go to school, they get sex education courses. And you have a seven, eight-year-old kid who went through the course and got an A. <laughs> he excelled in that subject. He knows or she knows exactly how babies are made and how they go in and how they come out and how they form, the, what the mother does and what the father does. And you've got dolls with diagrams with they can tell you everything, everything. And after they finish describing all of this quite intelligently, quite articulately, then you say to them, so that's what your parents do. And they say, oh, no. Uh-uh. And you think, ah, oh, you're such a child. You were born to your parents, right? You know how babies are made, so come on. That's what they do. Uh-uh. And they're right. They're absolutely right. That's how they were born, but that's not what the parents do. It's what you don't do. So somebody once said to me, I was saying this whole thing. Somebody said, What do you, what do you mean? It's something, it's, what do you mean you don't do? Everybody is always looking to get have to have sex. Now Jackie Mason's thing about. He says, he asked some producers, why do you always have to put sex in every movie? And the producer said, well, because, you know, that's life. People, people have sex. You can't keep it out of the movie. He says, and I always think to myself, but people also have soup. 
how come every movie doesn't have a soup scene? <laughs> and besides, more people have soup than sex. So the argument is, look, everybody's having sex. What do you mean? What do you mean it's something we don't do? Why does everybody want sex? Because it's something you don't do. Otherwise, why is sex any different than anything else? The first couple of times it's fun, afterwards it's boring. What, what, why is sex different? How many times can you go on a roller coaster? You go a few times, you throw up, and that's it. I mean, but this, this lifelong thing with sex, what is that? It's because there is no other experience where you can be where you shouldn't be, where you can go where you can't go, where you have this dual experience, like the Kayin Godel in the Holy of Holies, when he's not having inappropriate thoughts. On the one hand, he's so thrilled to be there. And what greater pleasure than to be in the holiest place in the world? And at the same time, he's thinking, what in the world am I doing here? I'm way out of my league. I got to do this right. I got to get out of here. And so he's very careful about, he, about what he's thinking. He's very careful about. And that combination, that doesn't happen with roller coasters. Sure, you wish you weren't there after. But it's not like you shouldn't be there. And that's why everybody seeks the pleasure of sex, because it's something you don't do. And again, the proof of that is there are societies, there, there were societies in history where sex became things you do. So they stopped doing it. Like the ancient Romans. It became so much of what you do that they all stopped. They all became homosexual. Now that's something you don't do. And if they could have kept that up long enough, that would have become something you do, and they would have stopped doing that too. And then who knows what. So it was the end of that civilization. And even on an individual basis, as soon as you start to become that familiar with each other, in a marriage where this is what we do, you don't want to do it anymore. And that's not being contrary. You know, I definitely want to do what I can't do. It's the nature of sanctity that you feel like you can't be where you are. <laughs> 